And there's the thumb of authority. So today is May the 5th. It's a special lecture discussion today. Not necessarily is conforming to the usual pattern because it's a high religious holiday. It is Cinco de Stivo, as you all know, and we have special gifts and we have put Kentucky Fried Chicken out of business to the point where we're going to go into the Kentucky Fried Chicken business for those of you on the vast Internet audience. Uh, that joke was a lot funnier when I first said it to just them. Uh, I, of course, have a deluge of, uh, of correspondence celebrating Cinco de Stivo. The, uh, the gifts just pour in by, uh, well, there's three. So, so that's... That's pretty cool. Uh, and I'm going to read those in just a second before we get started. The first one I got is addressed uh, from here is addressed to the answer me that dude, which is a, a tribute to uh, Ralph and Lorraine. Hi, Lorraine. Uh, you don't get the uh, sympathy you deserve for being with Ralph. So uh, that's uh, why I want to do that. And then I got uh, I got a uh, one of these things that moves. It can't move because I printed it off, but John uh, uh, sent me this. It was very well done, and happy Stevo de Mayo, he says. Uh, happy my pastor, uh, Stevio. So that was really cool. And then uh, uh, Sherry says, wow, is Cinco de Stevo here again already? <laughs> my, it's almost like time is accelerating. Uh, anyway, happiest of birthdays and anyone else reading a very merry uh, unbirthday to you. Uh, so that was nice. And then uh, I got uh, this one. And I have to. It's from Luke of Southeast Ohio. Dearest Cyclopean Theological Professional. Now he left out uh, Big Bone. But uh, Cyclopean obviously is... Uh, the one-eyed fat man reference. Wishing you a wonderful Cinco de Stilo from Southeast Ohio. I very recently discovered your material on sermonaudio.com. And although growing up in two great and very informative churches and attending a Bible college, it has opened uh, many exciting new avenues of thought and unraveled some befuddling passages. It has been an immense blessing. Straight to the point. I have wondered for several years about something, and despite searching, cross-referencing, and consuming copious amounts of aspartame-laden beverages, I still don't have an answer. Well, Luke, you're on the right path. I mean, maybe mix in a little Worcestershire sauce. The lady that got me to put that on just called recently to remind me that uh, that, uh, I owe her for that. Where am I? I still don't have an answer. I'm hoping perhaps you can shed some light on it. Since Jesus God is omniscient. Skittle, please. Now, that's very funny. Because Jenna's mom would teach all of you children, right? Didn't Johnny, to do music lessons, had to have a skittle. Isn't that correct, to play the violin? But it maybe Yeah, you were self-motivated, yeah. Well, he's a boy. Yeah, but anyway, Happy is famous for handing out Skittles to Sunday school kids that get the right answer. So she'd ask a question, they would say, Jesus, and stick out their hand and get a Skittle. And that's a joke I've been doing for years because I thought that was very funny, and he's referencing that. Which, 
Somebody sent me a joke in honor of this that I will try to reproduce for you. In a Sunday school class, apparently, a teacher has put a Tyrannosaurus Rex image up on the, up on the board and asked the children, uh, what is this? Because she was doing creation evolution. So there's a picture and uh, she wanted them to identify it. And one of the little boys in the class apparently said, I think it's a giant lizard, but I'm going with Jesus. <laughs> and that, of course, is where the Skittle thing comes from. And we do the same thing downstairs. We're feeding those kids full of Reese's peanut butter cups by the thousands. That's how come they're so much fun when you take them home. Okay. Why does he taste, talking about Christ, why does Christ taste the vinegar sour wine in the first crucifixion instance before rejecting it? I might need to return the skittle at this juncture. I feel like it should be obvious. I found some cool stuff while going through my list maker's list, including a really cool one where vinegar is mentioned along with singing. Proverbs 25.20. I'm not necessarily waiting, wanting the answer. That is fantastic. I would love a hint. Thanks for everything you do, and thanks to Imaginary Dave for facilitating access to it. Yours by my free will, Lucas from Southern uh, Southeast Ohio. I answered his question. Okay. As best I could. That's an excellent question. As you know, let's just put this really quickly for Lucas. Hi, Lucas. There's two wines. Once you understand there's two wines, you're in really good shape because one of them is narcotic and the other one is, is bitter, if you will. It's sour wine. And what that is, is that it's cheap wine or common wine. It's the wine mostly that the Roman soldiers had. And I believe that it's the wine that the Roman soldiers have because I'm confident that the one who gave the wine to Christ was a Roman soldier. So if you have those pieces, you start to begin to put it together. First off, you have to know there's two wines, and one of them is narcotic. Both of them were given to him by the Roman soldiers. Um, But the second one is interesting. A Roman soldier went and got his wine and put it on a sponge and put it in front of Christ. Now, Lucas says he, he did not drink the first one, but he tasted it. So what does that mean? And as an aside, how many, and that's my way of saying this, how many people are watching the crucifixion? There are thousands here. That's a big crowd. How does he taste it but not drink it? What's your answer? Lucas would be very disappointed. There wouldn't be a skittle in the place here. Well, obviously, he did what with the narcotic wine? He spit it out. Absolutely right. Very good. Skittles all around now. He definitely spit it out. Where else does he spit? He spits all kinds of places. He spits uh, Mark 7.33, Mark 8.23, of John. He's making things. He spits into the dust. He makes an eye out of spit and dirt or dust. He, this is very important, is the spitting. He didn't need to spit the wine out, so why does he do it? Well, clearly he's trying to teach something. 
What's the teach? What's the meaning of the two wines? What's the meaning of the spitting out of the one wine? Did he drink the second wine? Is the question that becomes clear because we have, as you know, Matthew twenty six twenty nine. I will not drink this wine again until I return. It's out of the communion service. So does he drink the second wine? Now he received it, but does that mean he drank it? Drank it. If he did drink it, that's interesting. But knowing that it's a Roman soldier who has watched this entire thing, and he decides when he says, I thirst, because that's the saying of the seven sayings, it's the fifth saying of the cross, right? And this, of course, is John 19.30. If he doesn't, if he receives it from the Roman soldier, why does the Roman soldier give it to him? He says, I thirst. Then he says, it is finished. And then, of course, uh, uh, into your hands, I send my spirit. So we're talking about fifth, sixth, and seventh of the seven sayings here. So for you to get a whole bag of Skittles, you have to decide why he spit the narcotic wine out, but he did not spit out the sponge wine. But it doesn't mean that he drank it. It's on a sponge. What's he have to do? He can't grab it. Well, he could. He's God. But he doesn't do that. He has to put his mouth over the sponge. It's soaked in this wine. What's the purpose? He says he's thirsty. So the Roman, the executioner, runs and soaks a sponge in his wine and gives it to the person that he has crucified. What's happening to that Roman? That's an amazing testimony. Who saw all of that? So there you go, Lucas. That will, I hope, get you started. Will I do it next week? Yeah, probably, because it was so much fun, this part about Cyclopean theological professional. I'm stealing that for all time now. But I hope that helps you. I don't know. My, my favorite was answer me that dude, but golly, this Cyclopean. Uh, that's really cool. Uh, that, that, that we can monetize that. We can steal it, can't we? Can't we steal it? Because who's Lucas? I mean, he, by the time he figures out we've got it copyrighted, trademarked. Okay, that was fun. That was uh, the special part of the special Cinco de Stevo lecture. So where are we now and what are we doing? Those are the two mandatory questions as you know, that arrive at periodic intervals here at beautiful downtown Cliffside, which is none of those, none of these, if you will. It's not beautiful. It's not downtown. There's no cliff. And for that matter, there's no chapel or community either. There's none of that. There's no, the whole name bears no relationship to reality. And obviously, the only conclusion is that our name must therefore be, excuse me, <coughs> metaphoric. And allegorical, because you have, you can be both. Maybe uh, it's a mysterious, complex, philosophical, theological message that's hidden in the name. Beautiful downtown Cliffside Community Chapel. Or we just slapped a bunch of church-sounding words together after a meeting. Uh, you can draw your own conclusions there. We don't have any idea what we're doing. But, nonetheless, we ask consistently, where are we now? What is the plan? Is there really a plan? Consider itself assessment. And um, 
And self-assessment, that's something that is rapidly reaching the extinction level, right? It's almost gone in this country. And that is uh, our age of googly face and idiot book. My gosh, the destruction that's being done by the, by the uh, technological companies. Silicon Valley, the, these, this is a horror, uh, what they're doing. Do you know they put a movie on television somewhere about teen suicide and 30 kids killed themselves? That is just, that is so irresponsible. That is predatory. That is attacking the weak, knowing, knowing full well that you're going to cause this and doing it anyway for money. That is as evil as you can be. Well, no, there's other evil. There's more evil. But that's certainly in the list. (sighs) Well, we're currently, what we're doing now and where we're going and what the plan is, is we're trying to gather up the blessing of Revelation 1-3. So we're into, there's this incredible blessing here. The blessing of Revelation 1-3 which is essentially the blessing that comes from understanding Revelation chapter 1 through chapter 3. And I sometimes make that confusing. Okay, all the time. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this property, a property, the words of this prophecy and keep those things that are written in it for the time is near that's what Jesus Christ says blessed is he who reads and those who hear and keeps the things that are written in revelation 1 through 3 this prophecy and you would think that that would be something very valuable to do a blessing comes and not necessarily in this church age so don't draw any quick conclusions the blessing comes with this prophecy Or a blessing comes with this prophecy. And thus the first obvious question, right? How many other prophecies in the Bible have a blessing attached to them? Do you know? Do you you get a Skittle? Would you like to take a guess? I do need a bag of Skittles, don't I? How big a bag would I need? Yes, a huge bag. Maybe a garbage can full of Skittles. And then I could throw them at the congregation by the fistfuls, because I'm not the janitor. Yeah. I'm no, I don't, uh, first thing, uh, marital advice, young men. People come to me for advice that they never take, and they won't take this one. Um, so, as a man, Aiden, don't ever learn how to load the dishwasher or run a vacuum cleaner. Just don't do it. Just be incompetent. Pick the vacuum cleaner upside down and make make sounds, but don't ever vacuum it. Same thing, just pile stuff all over the dishwasher and act like a complete incompetent. That's the best advice I can give you. (laughs) Okay, not the best, but pretty close. How many other prophecies have a blessing attached to them? How many do you think? Make a guess. How many blessings attached to a prophecy for those who read, hear, and keep the prophecy? Perhaps a superior question would be to phrase it this way. Is this the only prophecy in the Bible, the only this property that is in Scripture that has a blessing in it for those who read, hear, and keep it? What do you think? 
If it is the only prophecy, what's the next question? Why is it the only prophecy? Who exactly is going to read it and hear it and keep it? How does God define blessing? How does Jesus Christ, the one in whom all of time reside, who gives this prophecy, how does he, the infinite God himself in the flesh, define near? Because he says the time is near. Whoa. The timeless one makes a time reference. He who is outside of time says the word time. And he says it's near. What's the definition of near? The one who holds time, installs time, makes a time reference and says time is near. So the next question, how near is near? Near for whom? Near to whom? What does keep mean? There's skittle potential here all over the place. How is keep different from reads and hears? Because you read, you hear, you hear, you read, and keep. Not necessarily in that order. If reads is accents, access, in other words, availability, let me try again. Reading is the discovery phase. You're reading it, that you're finding the prophecy. You're being made aware of the prophecy. You might not even know that there's a blessing or a prophecy. Now you know. I've ruined your life. Now you're going to be held accountable for knowing and reading and keeping it. Hearing it. But if reading is the, is the, the possession of the manuscript and the ability to read the words, because I always ask the question, don't I? What if you're blind? What if you're... People say you must confess with your mouth. Well, what if you can't speak? You have no tongue. It's been cut out by the Assyrian army. What if you're deaf? What about children, infants? And start, you have to, when you make your rules as to who's saved and who's unsaved, you've you got work to do. Don't just be, what's the word I want? Uh, shallow. Begin to look at the problem carefully. If that's what reading is, the ability to, to have access to the manuscript and to read the words, the ability to read the words, and the, what about hearing then? Hearing would be the second phase, the second step, and I would submit that hearing, as God defines, carries understanding with it. So knowing the meaning, what the words mean, so you have read it, and now you know what it means, what's left? Keeping it. Keeping would be internalizing, in my view, owning. It would be logically belief, believing the prophecy. I can read the prophecy. I can know what it means. But now, if I don't believe it, I've, what have I got? Frankly, you've got nothing. And that takes us back to the fourth church again. All these churches, we're in this prophecy. and We're stuck here at the fourth church. Uh, Thyatira, which is the Jezebel church, or the prostitute church, or the whore church. Now, this is really funny. We came in yesterday to fill and heat, or not heat, but to fill the baptismal. And this, uh, this was over there in the back of the church, and it had the words uh, prostitute, whore, and witch, or something like that on it. And 
Fortunately, we noticed that and erased them. Uh, but, uh, but it still is absolutely correct. This is the prostitute whore, witch, mother of whores, church, Thyatira. Uh, let's see, where am I now? There we go. Thyatira, the Jezebel prostitute church, is the one that eats those who have been sacrificed to the Baal God, or the bull God, the Moloch Baal God. It's important to know that uh, Baal Moloch is the bull, or if you wish, the male calf, or if you wish, the golden, in this case it's bronze, or the brazen bull. But all of those things should be investigated when you're looking at the bull god. It explains a lot of things, as I said last week. And Jesus Christ gave Jezebel, that woman, the wife of Thyatira. He calls Jezebel the wife of the church of Thyatira, which they are married to her. And we're trying to figure out who is Thyatira. And gave Jezebel, that woman, he says, time to repent. But Thyatira did not repent as Jezebel did not repent. And Jesus God, God himself, sends the unrepentant of Thyatira into the great tribulation. And that is a extraordinary thing, string, if you will, path that we have to trace and find. Why is he doing this? Who are the children of Jezebel as it applies to Thyatira? Because Christ says, I'm going to kill the children of Thyatira with death. And he says he's going to do it so that all the churches, including Thyatira, will know something. They will know that he is the one who searches the minds and hearts. So let's get rid of... uh, This part, Jesus Christ gives us a a title. I am him who searches the minds and hearts. Revelation 2.23. Oops. That's a title that he gives himself. And it is important to know that he gives himself that title. Yes? When you say children, that literal children or descendants? I intentionally left it vague. For those of you on the internet, he is asking, is it literal children in Thyatira? Or is it the descendants of those who are following Jezebel's philosophy or theology? Which essentially will take you back to Nimrod. But Jezebel is identified. So which is it? Is it actual children? Or is it uh, the descendants uh, theologically, the philosophy of Jezebel, the apostasy of Jezebel would be a better. Is it those people who are doing what she did? So we'll have to identify what she did, which I began to do. Uh, and then we'll look and see if it's in a, in a, if you, for lack of a better, women in the church are entities. I'm sorry, women in the scriptures are entities. They are nations. They are ecclesiastical units. Uh, 
and are, are, are they are structures of some kind, governmental structures. Jezebel is one of the most profound symbols of a system that there is in the Bible. Who are the children of Jezebel? And where else do I find children being condemned by Christ? Skittle time. Where do I do it? Purple ones are the best? Okay. Do they, do they taste different, the purple ones? They do. Somebody that has no taste, would they know that? Fortunately, by drinking more aspartame, I'm beginning to get my taste back. <laughs> Incredulously, no one believes me there. Bill's question is excellent. Is this literal children are the are the proponents of this ecclesiastical system? Christ does call the Pharisees the children of Satan, doesn't he? The brood of Satan. So uh, these easily could be adults, and uh, likely that is the case because children have a special status to Christ. But would, do we have a church today or an ecclesiastical system today that believes in killing children? Oh, yes, we do. Absolutely, we do. We have a tendency, I should say quickly, uh, intercede here. We think that the world is, is the continental United States, excluding uh, Alaska and Hawaii. Um, that's what we think. Our media does not look outside of this country. They are stuck on, and they're stuck in a certain region. They're only, they only see New York. No cities exist but New York to them and Washington, D.C. It's a phenomenal bubble. It's a ridiculous one, and it, it, and it dominates our media culture. The Bible doesn't see the United States with any significance at all. Very little. The world to the Bible, the world to the Apostle John was the Middle East, the Roman Empire. Uh, and so the, that is the area of, uh, of focus, is the Middle East for the Bible. And we are hardly even noticed, which makes me wonder, what is our fate? This is a country that is descending quickly into profound darkness. We have a political party today that believes that it is perfectly acceptable to kill a child right up to the time of its birth, if not after. And it is the dominant position. They refuse to vote against it. Not one of them, not one member of that party has ever voted against uh, terminating and killing a child as it is being delivered. That is astonishing. That never would have happened in, in my time. Previous Cinco de Stevos, this didn't exist. But here it is. So this country is becoming a wreck, a moral sewage. And it won't be long now before it controls all aspects of it. Be buckled up. Where am I? Where are we going? We have to define Jezebel and that will help us define the children. Again, I, I hope I answered it. I tried not to be so obvious, but... Uh, uh, it is obviously an ecclesiastical system, and it has those who descend from Jezebel philosophically and theologically. Anyway, Jesus Christ says to them, I am him who searches the minds and hearts. Oh, we've got to pluralize that. What's implied there? 
Singularity. He is him. It's singular. It's exclusive. Jesus Christ is omniscient God. He is the omniscient judge and who knows and remembers all things. Therefore, he is the only one. He alone is able to judge every sinful event, all sinful information. He's the only one that knows it. He's the only one that sees all sinful information. How much sinful, sinful information do you have? Have you produced? He knows all of it. Now, extrapolate that out. How much sinful information is there? He's the only one that can process it. He's the only one that can search it. He is the Ancient of Days of Daniel 7, Daniel 10, and Revelation 1, 12 through 16. When he tells you, I am the Son of Man, he's talking about the Ancient of Days of Daniel 7, Daniel 10, Revelation 1, 12 through 16, and Revelation 2 at the fourth church of Thyatira. He's the bright light, the white blinding light that creates life. So the white blinding light creates life. He's the light of life that creates all that is good. Because he says so. He says it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good. It's what he says. Jesus is pure, absolute, perfect, good, always. There's never a time when he's not. It's called omnibenevolent, and he is always omnibenevolent. So the eating of children, which occurred at the very time of Jezebel, and I expect it to occur again if it hasn't been occurring already. The eating of children, who is interested in the eating of children? The very rich. Because why? What are they trying to do with this? They're trying to increase their lifespan. The, the tech billionaires in this country are focused. They are obsessed with, with uh, extending their lifespans. They're spending hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars to do it. How easy is it for a, for a very rich man to make it into the kingdom of heaven they have billions of dollars and they're anxious to hold on to that and they're anxious to live longer and they will do anything they can. They will make you the richest person that ever lived if you can extend their lifetime. It's amazing. And they become more and more and more evil. So, the eating of children sacrificed or murdered by the followers of Jezebel, Jeremiah 32:35. Very important thing here. Jeremiah 32:35. All of that Jezebel did. And again, sacrificing, murdering, consuming children, not just by her, but by her followers. She institutionalized it in the nation of Israel. And Jesus Christ, God says to Israel at Jeremiah 32, 35, this is not in my mind. So if it's not in the mind of God, what's the obvious question that follows here, the next descending question? Whose mind is it in? 
And obviously, this is an eventual uh, discussion on existence and will and living beings and the origin of evil, which everybody wants to know. How is evil? Where does it come from? What is the origin of evil? Evil is not in the mind of God, and it's never in the mind of God, and the Bible repeats that consistently. But mankind today especially insists that God is evil. You see it all the time. God is the source of evil, the author of evil, and, and they have been willfully and knowingly deceived by Satan. They know that's a lie, but they repeat it anyway. Why do they do that, Genesis 3? How many angels were deceived by Satan? That's a question I've asked many times over my so-called career. How many angels are there? How many angels were deceived by Satan? And then how many angels fell? We know that. How many of the unfallen angels remained deceived but didn't fall, didn't choose to fall? How many, how many of the angels knew they were deceived by Satan, but nonetheless believed in God? Is it possible to believe God and be deceived by Satan? Maybe next week. Man desires to believe that God is evil. Don't believe me? Watch anything from our media. And man today loves the lie of Satan. Why does man desire and want the lie of Satan to be true? What's in it for man here? Why do we have this situation? Why do we have this concept with such much, so much power in humanity? Last Sunday, page 10. In case you don't think I review what I said so that I'll know what I said. Sometimes I read it and I go, wow, this guy is really smart. Golly. He should, he should get a whole bag of Skittles. That's right. I don't think I like Skittles. I, I think I like chocolate. So we're going with Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. Uh, I don't know that I can taste it, but I like it. How's that? It's not rational. It's emotional. It makes me fit into the church today. Right? Um, I ask this a lot. Why does mankind lie to the one who calls himself the only one who can search the minds and hearts of living beings? Why does man lie to him? He's the judge. Think about the process. Is this a viable strategy? It's actually depravity. It's reprobation. It's insanity. I have a a judge in front of me that can read my mind. And not only can read my mind, but he can read my mind through time. Remember everything I have ever thought. And I'm going to lie to him. It makes no sense, but it is what's going to happen. And that's why Christ says, I am him, the only one who searches the minds and hearts. How many are going to lie to the pure white light of life, the creator of all that is good, when they stand before him, when they're standing before his throne? Again, Daniel 7. He is the searcher of minds, and thus the next obvious question rises up, and I think it is self-evident. Self-evident. What is he searching for? He's searching the mind. He's searching your mind and my mind and our hearts. That's another question, isn't it? I won't ask it yet. You should ask it ahead of me. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. Today it's going to be, we got uh, 3,000 pieces of Kentucky Fried Chicken. 
So it's fantastic. What's he looking for? I think, again, it is uh, clear. He, the judge, searches everyone, everyone, everyone for belief. Which then explains Matthew 13, 24 through 30 and Matthew 13, 40 through 43, which is the wheat and the tares parable. To summarize those, uh, that, that parable, the servants of the owner, him, Servants of the owner come to the owner after discovering that the field that he had planted with good seed is now filled with tares, not wheat. There's wheat, but there's also tares everywhere. And the owner says that that was planted by the enemy of the owner. So I have an enemy of the owner who's busy planting tares in the field. And the servants ask if the owner of the field would want them to gather up and separate the tares from the wheat. You've read the, the parable. But the Jesus answers them and says, no, don't do it. Why not? Gives them a reason. He says, because you're idiots. Okay, that's kind of me saying that. <laughs> but it's mostly true. He says, no. Lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat. The last thing you want is human beings deciding who's saved and who's not saved, which is what human beings want to do. They can't stand it. They all got to do it. And they'll shoot who they believe or the non-believers. Look at who killed the Anabaptists. Study that story sometime. Slaughter the Anabaptists. No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat. The immediate lesson is that in the age of the church, which is what we are in, it is the mystery kingdom. Let's put that on the board. The church is called the mystery kingdom. Very important. You know that. How many kingdoms are there? There's a universal kingdom. There's a messianic kingdom. This is the mystery kingdom. And it is Matthew 13, 11. Let me double check that. Yes, Matthew 13, 11. The mystery kingdom, the church age, Christendom, D-U-M-B. This period of time that we are in is going to have a defining characteristic, and that is going to be true sowing and counterfeit sowing or imitation sowing. And there's going to be this side-by-side development intermingled to the point that tares cannot be separated from the wheat by human beings, by man. The sheep and the goats are packed together, Matthew 25, 31 through 46. There's a relationship between the tares and wheat and the sheep and the goats. But notice that the servants could discern that the tares had invaded the field. They knew the field had been corrupted. I know the church has been corrupted. I can see it. It's awful. And I rail and rant against it. But there's nothing I can do. I cannot figure out. Who's who? He tells me I can't. I can't search the minds and find the belief. And the belief doesn't necessarily manifest itself in a way that I approve of. I've got tens of books of people who say that they have the ability to determine who believes and who doesn't believe. They write them all the time. Make lots of money. 
People go to those churches. How come? Well, they like it absolutely right, but they also want to be one of the ones that has been told that I believe that you are someone who believes. Who can do that? Only him. Don't you go anywhere near the tares and the wheats because you're a what? I don't have to repeat it. Dingleberries in the front or back, mucus in the front. Quit uh, running out there with your sickle. But notice that the serpents could discern that the tares had invaded the field. That's what we can do. And the servants thought they could gather the tares or the goats and they could leave the wheat and the sheep in the field. But uh, him who searches the mind said, no, you can't. Don't do it. The son of man in Matthew 13, 41, he calls himself the son of man. He attaches this to the son of man. Where else do we find him call himself the son of man? Oh, right here in Revelation 2. With regard to the fourth church. Thyatira, son of man, that's the ancient of days, will send his angels and they're going to gather uh, Matthew 31, 14, or 13, 14. And what are they going to do with the tares when they've got them? What does it say? Do you remember? They're going to cast them into the furnace of fire. Matthew 25, 41. That also refers back to Genesis 15, 17, where they, I find furnace. Revelation 1.15, where I find furnace. The Son of Man, Revelation 2.18. The title he uses when addressing the fourth church, Thyatira, the prostitute church, the Jezebelian church. Son of Man, Daniel 7.13. Again, the judge sitting on his throne, the bright light, the ancient of days, the searcher of the minds and hearts. He's the one who will kill the children of Jezebel with death. As he defines death, Revelation 20.14. I know there's a lot here, mostly for the Internet people who take notes. Okay, they don't. They push pause. Let's not give them more credit than they deserve. He's the one who will separate the tares from the wheat, identify them for his angels and the sheep from the goats. And hopefully you can recognize the pattern of the parables of the mystery kingdom, because that is Matthew 13. The mystery kingdom is one of the 11 mysteries of God, 1 Corinthians 4.1. There's 11 mysteries, and it says this in 1 Corinthians 4. Let a man so account us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. We're supposed to know all the mysteries and we're supposed to know what they mean and how they fit together. And we'll be held accounted. We'll be held account to account for that. The mystery kingdom is the mystery of the church age. It's the third, the fourth, and the fifth mysteries of the eleven mysteries. I could give you the mysteries, the incarnation, the indwelling, the third, the fourth, the fifth is the mystery kingdom. And then, of course, comes the tribulational saints, the abduction of the bride, then the Israel's blindness, the man of sin, the Antichrist, um, mystery Babylon, which again is uh, the, the great whore. Number 10, the bride of Christ, and number 11 is the restoration of all things. The point for today, yea, finally a point. 
Only the omniscient God, Jesus Christ, who knows all things. Remember, Peter had to say, you know all things. Before he would be, you know all things. Then he said, follow me. You've got to know that he knows all things. And he knows all things. And he needs to know all things. Doesn't need to know. That's a humanistic way. But having knowing all things makes him the only him who can search the minds and hearts for belief. Jesus Christ can find belief in the minds of men. We can't. It's not for us to gather tares. But... We can see apostasy. Also note that Matthew 13, 1 through 52. Put that on here somewhere. So all of Matthew 13 is equal to Revelation chapter 1, 2, and 3. So there's your... Matthew 13, 1 through 52 gives us the seed that is snatched by birds. And then the monstrosity of the mustard tree that is filled with those birds. And the woman, and I submit the woman is Jezebel, and she's mixing leaven into the unleavened bread. What's the unleavened bread? It's a picture of Christ. So she's mixing uh, corruption. She's mixing filth into the picture of Christ. And she does it until the unleavened bread is all leavened. Do we have a church structure today that has taken the sinlessness of Christ, the purity of Christ, and mixed it with so much garbage that we can't even identify it because it's all leavened bread now? Obviously we do. We live in this age. Matthew 13, 1 through 52 equals Revelation 1, 2, and 3. They're talking about the same thing. And those three parables and the, and the wheat and the tares, again, we find it showing up in Revelation chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Revelation. The mystery kingdom will also be contaminated by heresy. We should expect that. And I think it's confirmed. It's overwhelming. You can't miss it. If you think the church today is not overcome by heresy, get better glasses. You've got a driver's test you're going to have to take. Don't try to fake your way through it. The church is a wreck. And if you don't know it, you're not paying attention. Doesn't mean it's completely dysfunctional or that there isn't sheep there or there isn't wheat there. There is. But it is contaminated to the point where all the bread was leavened. How close are we being with all the bread being leavened in the church? Who describes Christ accurately today? And this is the great question of Christ, isn't it, of John eleven twenty five, which I'll ask a, a, a few minutes hence to those who wish to be baptized. Christ asks this question, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Do you believe this? 
Notice he's asking you if you believe, because he searches for belief. Do you believe him when he says who he is? The searcher of minds, the searchers for belief, the search, he search, I'm sorry, the searcher of minds who's searching for belief, the judge himself presents belief as evidence at the trial of men that he is adjudicating over. Who's going to believe him? Okay, really fast, moving along, throwing things at the dry erase board time. Back to John 8, the prostitute and the dust and the light of life. Notice the order. I have a prostitute that's going to be executed. I have the dust and then I have the light of life. They're in a wonderful order. The light of life follows the dust and the dust follows the prostitute brought before God to be executed. That order is not arbitrary. It can't be. It's God, omniscient God, who put it there. I have a fallen woman, don't I, brought before Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the last Adam or the second Adam. I have a fallen woman who's going to be executed, brought before the last Adam. The second Adam saves her from certain death. Does that remind you of anything, Catherine? The second Adam saves the fallen woman from a death. She's to be murdered by the brood of vipers, the serpents, Matthew 23, 32. And I think it's obvious this is a fulfillment of Romans 5, 15. Adam is a type of him who was to come. John 8 directly connects to Genesis 3. So put that in your basket. And we should read this account really fast. And when I say really fast, I mean so, so fast. You gotta find it first as a professional. You know, they have these little, they have Bibles with little tabs on them, and I should get one, but I can't find one that's worth buying yet. That's enough. That's a condemnation, isn't it? But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, not. He went there on purpose. Why? What else happens to the Mount of Olives? To a woman. Now, early in the morning, he came again into the temple and all the people came to him. How many people? And he sat down and taught them. What did he teach them? He taught them about himself, who he is. Do you believe him? Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And, they, and, and when they had set her in the mist, they said to him, so she's surrounded Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. We have her on videotape with us. I mean, sorry. Now, Moses, in the law, commanded us that such should be executed by stoning. But what do you say in conflict with Moses if you're going to do that? They said this, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger, the finger of God, and though as though he did not hear them. Oh, that's an important piece of information. He doesn't hear them. So when they continued asking him, so what's the obvious question? How many times did they ask him? How long did this take? He raised himself up. He who is without sin among you, 
Let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, heard what? Well, let's see. He stooped down and wrote on the ground. Did they hear him stooping down? No. What did they hear? I've done this before. They heard him writing. He's writing. Apparently it's loud. Loud enough that they can hear him. Have you ever written in the dust? Let's all go outside. We have plenty of dust. It's right in the dust. How loud is that? Anybody hear you? They heard him. Convicted, but those who heard it being convicted by their conscience. Now some say, well, it's, they heard what he's saying. Convicted by their conscience, went out one by conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, that would be me, to the last, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the mist. Now, where's the crowd? Or is it just the Pharisees that left? You put all that together. He said to her, woman, where are your accusers of, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? Christ asks a question. Does he know where the accusers are? Oh, yeah. Does he know where they went? Oh, yeah. Does he know where they're going? Oh, yeah. She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Then Jesus spoke to them again. Who's them? Saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And the Pharisees show back up again. So we have to figure all of that out. We'd just begun John 8, and we, we started it last Sunday, and I've done it before. But the, again, I want you to begin to see how it fits with Thyatira. But we asked about the dust last week, and I wanted you to notice the raising himself up. Can't say that enough. Jesus Christ raising himself up, John 2.19, John 10.17. Woman, he calls her woman. Why does he call her woman? He's omniscient God. Does he know what woman means? Well, of course he knows what woman means. Duh. He knows this is the name given to who? Woman. Woman is the name of somebody, a specific somebody. A specific somebody is named woman. Who? The one that Adam named. The one taken from Adam. That's the one who's named woman. Genesis 2.23. Jesus references Genesis 2.23. He does it a lot. You can find him every time he says woman, he's talking about woman. The third saying of Christ from the cross is woman. John 19, 25 through 26. To repeat, does God know that the woman is the name of the woman? Duh, men. Woman, where are the serpents who thought I would execute you? Stoning was the Jewish capital punishment system. Crucifixion is Roman. He said, he who is without sin. Who's the one that is without sin? Well, that's only him. Does he know that he's talking about himself? Oh, please, please. 
Who has, has no one condemned you? Who's the one that can condemn you? Can they condemn her? They can't. And she says, no one, Lord. She was, she was right about that, but she didn't know who the one was in that sentence. You have not condemned me, God, is what is the right answer. Has no one condemned you? Who can condemn her? Who is the only one who can condemn anyone? Truly condemn, Matthew 10:27. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Fear me, he said. Fear him. Fear him who searches the minds and the hearts. Fear the judge. Don't fear anybody else. Fear him who is able to send body and soul to destruction. He is the him who can condemn. He is the him that searches. He is the him who judges. He's the him who sends the body and soul to the lake of fire. He is the one who is without sin, who is omniscient and searches the hearts and minds. All of this fits together. Obviously, John 8 is another place where the searcher of minds started searching minds. He can't stop himself from looking for belief. He's the salvation. He's the saver, savior. He is looking for belief. I didn't have time last week to include the controversy that accompanies John 8. I'm going to do it this week. Many dispute the inclusion of John 8 even into the Bible. A lot of manuscripts, ancient ones, removed it, excluded John 8. And I think that's a mistake. I think it's clearly and indisputably Scripture because of the dust, because of the finger of God, because of let him who is without sin, because of the light of life, has no one condemned you. All of those things go all over the Scripture, all throughout the Bible. They reach deep and far into the Old Testament and into the New Testament, testifying of the Godhood of Christ. Jesus, John 8 is amazing and it's perfectly placed. Okay, enough of that. Send me letters arguing. Anyway, the Pharisees had their planning session. They came up with another paradox, or so they thought. Unsolvable. They're going to have God in front of them. They don't know that, but they're going to place infinite God into a box. Yeah, good luck there, huh? How big a box are you going to need? How strong has it got to be? And they're going to force him to execute a temple prostitute or release her. And now this gets into cult prostitution. Don't think prostitution like you normally think prostitution. Okay, I hope you don't normally. But your definition of prostitution does not apply here. This is cult prostitution, or if you wish, Jezebel prostitution. It's not the same as what we would consider in our culture prostitution. Uh, so that's a much bigger issue. Is this woman a Jezebel, Jezebel Baal prostitute? If yes, this becomes a more complex situation. In any event, none of the Pharisees could have anticipated that the finger of God would put his finger in the dust and that he would make lice out of dust, which is what he does. He makes life out of dirt or dust. They did not think that he could search their minds and know their hidden thoughts, and they did not know that. If they had known that, then they would have anticipated that he would reveal their thoughts while they're thinking them. He would probably reveal their thoughts before they thought them. 
And he says, he who has not committed adultery with this cult prostitute, let him kill her with a stone. I hadn't expected that. And obviously I reworded the statement to repeat it from last Sunday. I think the sin is, as applied to the Pharisees here, the specific sin of adultery with this woman, not general sin. It is all sin, however, or sinlessness, when it is applied to himself. So there's a duality. And I think that's the the obvious meaning because that's what Jesus always does. He says these things that are incredibly layered. And John 8, again, which is why it should be in the Bible, has this element where the specific sin of the prostitute and the sinlessness of him. He who is without sin. All sin, and you who have a specific sin with this exact woman. And uh, I think, again, it's beyond obvious that this is so, because these are hypocrites. And then Christ would have them kill each other. Right? It would be the ultimate circular firing squad, because they're all guilty of having adultery with this woman. So they all get shot. And many, are, and many have speculated that Jesus wrote something that proved the complicity of the Pharisees. We don't know how long this trial lasted. This is a trial. Do you understand that? I've got a judge. I've got a jury. I have the plaintiff. I, I have, I'm sorry, the defendant. I have the, I have the prosecution. This is a trial. What's that? Where's the first trial in the Bible? With a fallen woman. And somebody wants to murder her. That's accusing everybody. Genesis 3 is again here. That's why John put this where he put it. How long did the trial take? Have you been to a trial, a murder trial, a capital punishment trial? They take months. How long do you think this one took? If you think it took five minutes, think again. The Ancient of Days took his time. The finger of God wrote for a very long time, relatively. relatively. God made everyone wait. Does he make you wait? Do you like it? Learn to like it. It's what he does. There was a whole bunch of stuff to write. And he writes twice. Why does he write twice? The Pharisees, what did he write the first time? Then what did he write the second time? Did he write the same thing twice? Has he ever written the same thing twice before with his finger? How much noise did it make? Just thinking aloud, which is something I should probably never do. The Pharisees are given time to repent, if not to assess their fate, because they might have figured out, oh my goodness, this is somebody different. This is the finger of God, Exodus 8:19. Did they figure out that this is the finger of God? Did these that dropped their stones refer, return to the chief priest, Annas, and tell him as the magicians of Pharaoh did? Do you understand this is the finger of God? What did Annas do? Did he come to belief? How about these Pharisees? How about that crowd? How many believed? Back to lying to God we go. Back to those who will deny that Jesus Christ searches for the minds and hearts. Matthew 7. This is where the liars show up. You have to know this is liars. If you don't know this is liars, you won't get it to Matthew 25 and you'll make a mess. 
Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me, let me repeat that, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. He identifies them as what? Many will say, who are the many that will say? I'll repeat it in a different way. Many will lie to me. He is the one who searches the minds and the hearts. He knows all things. People are going to lie to him. They will lie to his face. And it ends with the condemnation, condemnation, the sending of body and soul to the lake of fire. Many will say to me. That's the same as many will lie to me. These are liars. They did none of this. None of what they said did they do. Not a single thing. They raised nobody. They cast out no demons. They didn't prophesy. They didn't do any wonders at all. It's all a lie. He identifies it as a lie because he, he throws them into the lake of fire. These are liars. And it becomes clear again at Matthew 25, 41, which is attached to Matthew 7, 22 through 23. It's the sheep and the goats. It's the tares and the wheat. The liars of Matthew 7, 23 are the goats of Matthew 25, 33 and 25, 41. Fear him who searches the minds and hearts and finds no evidence of belief and casts you into the lake of fire. Fear him. Fear God. Believe God. Shut it down there. Did good. By good, I mean I ended on time.